Hey guys, this is Nash, and you're listening to Brewery Talks Podcast, a podcast bringing you the stories behind the beer. In today's episode, I sat down with the brewmaster at College Street Brewhouse, Jason Hellart, and we talked about beer, the brewery, but we also went on a tangent about canning beer and the decisions behind canning beer and what goes into that. So if you've ever been curious about what goes into the canning process and canning beer, check out this episode. Cheers, guys. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Nash. I am back in Arizona. I am up in Lake Havasu City. I'm sitting here with Jason Hellart, the brewmaster of College Street Brewhouse. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing amazing. So right now, I have to say right off the bat, we're recording in a van. Yeah, in a in a 1967 VW bus. And yeah. and that is and that's all of your guys' social media, your guys' website. What is the significance of this van? Um, the it's basically a big marketing tool for us but i'm also a big vw guy i own a 73 myself and i've been into it for a long time i'm a member of the club out here and uh it's kind of uh the flagship beer that we have is big blue van it's a blueberry vanilla wheat beer um it's a huge success here in arizona and this is kind of the, our van from the front of the can you know this is our bus and so. in honor of that jason asked what beer i wanted and of course i went for that one just to say i had it, it in, in yeah. the van I gotta say though, like we got blue LEDs in here, and I had them on at night when we were down at the, at the festival last weekend. But now it's kind of it's a little porn vanish. Doesn't it feel a little <laughs> porn vanish? Well, it, I, don't, I don't think it helps that cause the fact that we're in a factory right? or we're, 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 in, we're in the brewery right now. It is now. parked inside the brewery, <laughs> and we are inside the van that is inside the brewery. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you hear some background noise, I think they're are, are they canning? What are they doing right now? Yeah, we're canning beer and brewing beer also at the same time. So oh wow, we got full production going on. But there's also construction going on, and there's you know, like every brewery, there's stuff everywhere. So it's like trying to find a place we could record was like, well, let's just do it in here. <laughs> you, unique to you guys is the fact that in the middle of all the construction, brewing, canning, you guys have a van parked in the middle. Of yes, the we thing. got a van parked inside. <laughs> That's true. Um, so I mean, I'll go right. I'll go right to the beers. I always don't get to the beers till later on. So I want to start with the beers this time. So this uh, blueberry wheat you said is yeah. the big blue van. Yes. So that is your guys' flagship. I've seen that all around stores, everything like that. It is. It's really big in Arizona, and it's moving into Nevada. So we're getting ready to move up to Reno, too, so we're going to move into northern Nevada. But we've been in Vegas for about two or three years now. Um, between that blue van and our sour, they're probably our biggest sellers okay. across the state. Yeah. And what's the sour beer? So the sour is a blueberry sour beer also. Okay. So we ended up kettle souring probably like three years ago as an experiment, and then um, we decided to go ahead and move forward and can it and hit the grocery stores with it. And we ended up being the first sour beer in a can in Arizona. So we're the first sour, and can- sour oh, wow. in a can. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a, a pretty neat accomplishment. Yeah, it's all right. There's a lot of, I mean, beer, canned beer comes out all the time. Now it's so easy to get a beer in a can, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least maybe we make it look easy, but you can get it done quick. So, <laughs> And it, it is pretty cool to see you guys' most popular beer is a blueberry Wheat beer. I mean, nowadays you see so many IPAs and the hazy IPAs. It's yeah. Um, Arizona's got a huge IPA following. You know, don't don't think otherwise. But it is so hot out here in the summertime that it's a hardcore wheat beer state. You know what I mean? So when our our big blue van hit really big, um, it got super popular because of how hot it is on a regular basis and how crushable and how drinkable it is on a massive scale. So so many people like it. It comes becomes their fallback. You know, you can only drink so many IPAs on a boat in 120 degree weather before, you know, you risk your own life. So <laughs> a lot of people switch and do the, do a wheat beer. That's a really good point. I didn't, I didn't think about the hot days. It's, it's super refreshing beer, especially with the blueberries in it. I mean, 
You can't go wrong. Yeah, everybody wants to put the blueberries floating in it. We've had people ask us to put them in the can, but <laughs> put blueberries in a can, they don't last as long as a beer does. Uh, and then it's funny how you said the, you know, it's hard to crush a couple IPAs on a boat because we're in Arizona and people don't usually think boats and water when thinking about Arizona, but Lake Havasu City. Yeah. Big old lake right there. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the biggest draw out here is the lake and um, the London Bridge. You know, it's one of the seven top tourist spots in the country. So oh, people is it come really? and check it out. Yeah, people come and check it out. The London Bridge from the 1800s is sitting out here, rocking, running across the channel. Um, and we are a huge powerboat lake. You know, it's 45 miles of navigable water. So there's a lot of boats out there, and the water gets nice and warm. You know, you're talking like 70s. Low 80s and the water temperature. That's solid. You know, on the higher levels. So it's super comfortable in the summertime. You know, if you're out in 120 degree water and you can, or 120 degree weather, you can jump in the water and it's, you know, technically it's only 30 degrees colder, but still, you know, it's more refreshing. We're, you know, we're a big water state. And then the London Bridge, that is like the one from the fairy tale, like London Bridge is falling down, falling down? No, actually. So it's the one right after. So okay. the one we got was, I think it was taken apart in 18. In the 1800s, and then we ended up purchasing it, well, Havasu, John McCulloch ended up purchasing it, Robert McCulloch, sorry. He bought it in um, the 60s for $2 million bucks because it was starting to list and sink. Um, so he bought it, dismantled it stone by stone, they brought it out here and reassembled the whole thing stone by stone, and then they dredged the channel underneath it. So initially it just was a land bridge that went across oh. land, and then they dredged the channel, which turned it into the island that you have out there now. Yeah. So that's not the one from the fair. It's not the one from the nursery rhyme. That one actually fell down. Yes, it's the uh. one before. The nur- <laughs> it's it's the one right after the nursery rhyme. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And there's that- been numerous iterations of that bridge across the Thames. So. <laughs> it's the the nursery rhyme that that just stays around. Yes. Um, and then it's funny you mentioned the uh, the speedboats too, because we were driving around the other day and we saw some guy towing the speedboat. I was like, oh my god, I've never seen a boat that long and like like I was, it was a speedboat right. it was like probably 40 feet long i was like holy cow there's a lot of them they do a uh, um desert storm down here which is a lot of large boats i mean these are boats that are so long and so wide they're towed by semis and they're at a 45 oh degree God. angle on the trailer because they're so big they can't fit across the lanes of traffic but yeah there's some serious some serious money floating around down this area <laughs> for boats and water sports and then we have the jet ski finals every year out here they're really? pretty popular, yeah. Like nationwide or like Arizona-wide? Nationwide, yeah. Actually, across the world. So it's the World Jet Ski Finals are here in Havasu, yeah. And then, I, I know there's a big uh, like spring break college scene, too, because that's how I first heard about it. I was like in college one time. I was looking up videos like, oh, where should we go for spring break? And I stumbled across a video of this, and it looked like it was like crazy, like party boats. Yeah, and- it is. Um, it's not as crazy and not as wild now as it was back in the 90s. Um Back in the 90s, you know, MTV came here a lot. There was a lot of live concerts. You know, Biggie Smalls played on the, in the channel in Copper Canyon on a, on a houseboat. You know, there was a lot of that. But it's it's calmed down a little bit. You know, the economy is what it is. It kind of goes up and down. So there's still a big college spring break crowd that comes rolling out here. But it's not quite as wild as it used to be wild. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I I saw the party boats and uh, yep. I saw they were sponsored by like Bud Light and like Rockstar. I'm like, oh wow, this must get yeah, like, pretty still, serious. They, you can get in the channel and you can rent um, pontoons that basically they don't have any motor or nothing. They just kind of they beach them out there for you, uh, put a barbecue on it, and they're all wrapped and sponsored. And people just sit there and party, play loud music, and swim in the channel. Yeah, I'm a local, so I don't really hang out on, on the water on spring break. I wait until everybody leaves and then I go out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So speak, yeah. So actually, let's let's dive into who you are and what you do. So 
you're local, but you're not originally from this area, correct? No, yeah. I grew up in uh, Colorado. So I grew up in Louisville. It's right outside of Boulder, Colorado. Um, my, you know, my parents were in the tech business, and I wanted to be a film student. So I went to film school in Denver for a while and then decided it was time for me to experience some youth. So I left college and decided to move out here in like 2001. I was 21 years old. Moved out here to 10 Bar and drink, basically. And so I came out here, had a great time, and then I hit that point where I figure everybody in their youth goes through where they start realizing, like, now it's time to get it together and figure out what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> so I ended up joining the service at 26, and I went I went to the Navy for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then coming back from boot camp up in the on uh, the Great Lakes in, excuse me, in Illinois was uh, incredibly cold and decided I never wanted to be that cold again. So I was transferring to San Diego. I came down through here and I met my wife and, uh, or at the time she ended up being my girlfriend. We moved to San Diego and then took off for Hawaii. We spent two and a half years in Hawaii and then lived in San Diego for the last six. And then since my wife was born and raised here, um, she's in education. She wanted to move back here and get into the school district and work. So we moved back here, and she's a principal in an elementary school where my two kids go to school currently. So, yeah. It's a pretty wild story. A little bit yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for your thank you for your service. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for paying taxes. <laughs> and how did – so somewhere along the way you had to fall in love with beer and brewing beer because now you're, you are the, the brew master. Yeah. So that, that's a big title. Master's a loose term. <laughs> um, when I was when I was younger, my dad was really into craft beer. I mean, we grew up on the Front Range in Colorado where a lot of those big breweries were starting. Left Hand was starting up. Oscar Blues was starting up. So up in Estes Park. So my dad was really into the craft beer, and he really liked it. So I spent some time, like, you know, every kid that sees that person doing the job they wish they had, that guy back there in the coveralls that was behind the glass making all the beer, and everybody wanted to meet him. You know, everybody wanted to meet the brewer. Everybody wanted to hang out with him. So I thought that would be a, a great job, you know. And the last two years I was out here in town before I joined the service, I was an apprentice and uh, did assistant brewing up at Barley Brothers, which is one of the, the original breweries out here okay. in Havasu. And worked there for two years, and then that's when I joined the service and left. And the guy that was a brewmaster over at Barley Brothers uh, started up College Street here. So it just kind of lined up. They'd been open for a year. By the time I got out of the service and came back looking for a job, I talked to him, and he hooked me up with a job, and then he decided that um, he wanted to try out some new things and try some new stuff, so he sold his interest in the business, and then I was kind of standing at the right place at the right time, and I just kind of took over, so now I run the brewery side. Yeah. I've never homebrewed a day in my life. That might be why I, why I maintain how much I love it on the professional scale, because okay. hitting it on the, on, the, on the big scale, it was easier to hit the, you know, to, to have beers come out successful. I had a really good mentor. He knew what he was doing. He taught me to do what I'm doing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've thrown out batches of beer. So, I mean, I've had failures. That happens to everybody. But never on a, on a although it sounds bad, but I've never had a failure on a small scale. So, <laughs> it, you know. If you're going to fail, you might as well do it on a big scale. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, things are a little, they're a little, I think professionally, they're easier to hit your marks on large scale equipment. You know, the, the large scale is a little bit more forgiving. You know, small sanitation problems you know, on a, on a small system become huge sanitation problems. You know, okay. on a large system, it's a lot easier to control and, man, you know, maintain those kind of things. Okay. So, And then, speaking of system, how, what kind of system we have here? I'm, I'm trying to look out the window of the bus right now to yeah, see The it. horn bus? <laughs> so, so we're a traditional four-vessel system. So we've got a mash tun, 
a lotter ton, a boil kettle, and a whirlpool, all separated in four different vessels, okay. so that we can brew 24 hours a day, seven days a week, around the clock if we had to. Wow. Um, we're 30 barrels, so we do 930 gallons at a time when we're brewing, and we got right now six 60-barrel fermenters, a couple of bright tanks, a 60-barrel and a 30-barrel, and then a canning line that we run full-time. I love just seeing the canning line. I always ask people if they have canning sizes. I, I, the, the, I like to appreciate the, like, just the processes that go into it. It just looks yeah. so uh, Manufacturing controlled. side? Yeah, yeah, I'm just like, wow, that's awesome. So, yeah, we used to do uh, mobile canning for the longest time. Um, where we had guys come in from San Diego, mobile canning west out of San Diego. Matt, and uh, those are some great guys that helped us get starting, started in the canning world. Um, they used to come out and we can once or twice a month, and it took about five or six of us to get it all done and ready to go. Um, we decided to go ahead and get this canning line of our own and get rolling. So we got a canning line. We got a candy palletizer that takes them off the, the pallets, sends them down to the canning line, and this basically whole system's turned it into a one- or two-man job. So now it runs basically every day, all day. So, yeah. And how much space does that take up? Because I hear a lot of people say they can't do it, one because of cost and one because of space. Yeah. Is it is it a big... Uh, like square footage of a area to have the canning line set up? Well, when we used to do the mobile canning side, um, it was easy because they brought it in with them. So they brought all the equipment in. We just made room at the time. Okay. Um, once we got to the point we needed to can so much and we decided to get our own, we worked with uh, Wild Goose, which is actually out in Louisville, and then uh, Scott Fabricating from Durango. We worked with them on the layout, and we got it down to actually a really small footprint. You know, it's probably the total footprint's probably three times the size of the bus we're sitting in right now. You know, um, without looking at it, and doing some measurements, I couldn't tell you how many square feet it is. <laughs> but if you got to look at it, it's pretty. It's small in comparison to a lot of packaging lines you're going to see in some of some of the other breweries out there. Okay, okay, and then, and then what's the decision process like when deciding what beer gets canned or which one doesn't? So a lot of the stuff that goes into production is going to be based on popularity. So we usually do a couple of um, wet runs. We call them when we'll run, we'll run a can that's wrapped instead. It's got a shrink wrap on it. They're easier to get. You can get them in smaller amounts, and we'll test something out. If it hits and it's popular and people want us to keep it in a can, then we'll move to a printed can, and then it moves into a full-time production beer. Oh, yeah. so that's why the cans. Ha- I yeah. have seen the cans. Like, I've never knew why it was yeah. like that. So wrap cans are more expensive, but you can buy much smaller amounts. Once you move into printed cans, you have to buy like whole pallets worth or whole okay. truckloads worth, which is like 25 pallets. Okay. So, and at which point you're talking about an $18,000 investment in a, you know, in a beer, hoping that it's going to sell all of those. In okay. a given time, so. And then, what do you do if it doesn't? Is just uh, like, how, how does that work? So, let's say you know you brew a whole bunch of these cans, then uh, they're not selling as quick as you like. Do you just have to like drink them? Or? Well, no. So, for instance, like our stout, it's a seller, but it's a slow mover, right? Because it's it's Arizona, it's super hot, and that's and a sweet devil stout. Sweet devil, yeah. yeah. So, it's light bodied. Um, it's not as heavy as a lot of stouts. You know, it's not quite as thick. But it's still super hot out here. So we, we sell stout in northern Arizona in the wintertime. And the wintertime in Arizona is only three months long. It's, you know, other places it's much longer. But it's only three months long. So we bought a full truckload of that stout probably three years ago. Um, and we're still working our way through that whole truckload. So it's, it just takes us longer to sell the cans. Okay. You know, because the beer still moves. It just takes us longer to do it. Okay. Yeah. But we also bought, we bought that load of cans back when you used to be able to buy a half a pallet or, you know, eight pallets at a time. Once uh, aluminum started getting more hard and difficult to come by, um, a lot of the manufacturers decided that they were only going to do runs of a printed can if you did a full truckload. So probably about five years ago, that rule cha- they changed and kind of made those rules. And that's where wrap can craze started hitting because it got easier to do that. 
And a lot of breweries actually label their cans themselves. So they'll just do blank cans. They'll put a sticker label on it. I was going to say, yeah. I've seen a lot of them that just put the sticker on. And I've yeah. seen like breweries that have like evolved from having those. And like a couple years later, they have like you know the nice... Yeah, pretty the, can. Yeah. Yeah, because you're paying... You know, for a blank can, you're paying 20 cents, depending on where you get it from, average. So you're paying around 20 cents for a blank can, paying another 25 to 30 cents for a sticker to put on it. You know, when you go to a printed can, you pay 9 cents, 10 cents for a 12-ounce can, and 13 to 14 cents for a 16-ounce can, printed, ready to roll. You know what I mean? And it cuts off that whole, that section of labor. So now you no longer have to label it anymore to get it going. So it just kind of saves you little bits of money here and there. Okay. Let's talk about bottling as well. So bottling is getting kind of phased out in the in the industry, correct? Yeah, well, it's a bit, um, I guess you could call it traditionalist. Um, there still is a place for bottles. I mean, 22-ounce bottles are still huge sellers. But it's getting to the point now where, you know, recyclability on a can is just way better. You know, the majority of people, not, maybe I don't want to guess the majority, but a lot of people have a tendency to, instead of recycling a glass, sometimes they just toss it. You know what I mean? And cans are just more readily recyclable. They're easier to manage, carry around with you, smash, you know, take places. You can't really have can- bottles down now at campsites and stuff like that, so cans become more and more prevalent, you know. Absolutely. We used to actually bottle here. We bottled 12-ounce uh, um, heritage bottles, which are little shorties. They're kind of short. Um, and it was a n- nightmare. I mean, it was good when we were just starting out. And we're doing, like, maybe three or 400 cases a month of whatever we were selling because – we basically get in blank bottles. We had to have a machine, a $50,000 machine to put labels on the bottles. And then once it was done with that, we had another $40,000 machine that we had to put beer in those bottles. And, the you know, if you're not into the big rotary machines that, are, that you know, maintain themselves a little bit better and take a little bit better, you, you tend to break bottles. As soon as you break a bottle on a small Maheen six-head filler, you got to stop the whole machine, clean it all out, take it apart. So, like, a full day... We can, or we'd bottle like 300 cases tops, you know, and we'd have to start all over the next day. So, in order to get one order out, it was three weeks worth of work just to get one order for bottles out, you know. So, at one point, you're just like, no more bottles, we're going cans? Yeah, we started in 16 ounce cans. Um, we The blue van was big in bottles. Um, we shifted to 16 ounce cans and did those as a secondary release of it. And then we decided to make the move of a 12 ounce can. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of kickback. On the going from the bottle of cans, some traditionalists. I look at them the same way you look at people that like prefer, you know, traditional cork to synthetic cork when they're drinking wine. Or a lot of people won't support the screw top because they think it makes you know whatever it is. I think it's all in your head personally. <laughs> but you know, I mean, cans are little kegs. You know, kegs is a hunk of aluminum, and everybody likes draft beer better. Cans is a little keg. You know, zero light, zero air. When you're done drinking it, you can smash it, take it with you, and end up throwing it all in the recycle. And in 60 days turns the thing right back into a can again, you know? So it just seems like the most environmentally safe way to go. And I mean, even for, like, hiking, like you said, yeah. on a boat, like you know, never have to worry about it. Even, I mean, being in the RV right now, like, the first thing I always have to drink are my bottled beer if I, if I ever get those because those, you know, we after we drive a while, open the fridge, those fall out, smash over the floor, yeah. and that's happened one too many times. Yeah, that's, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just pro canned beer. And if you like bottled beer... Or you like draft beer better than canned beer? My suggestion is get yourself a pint glass, open your can of beer, pour it into a pint glass, <laughs> and it's draft beer. You know what I mean? I feel like everybody has that one aunt that only drinks like one style of beer out of like one vessel. Like they only drink yeah. like Miller Lite out of a bottle. Like yeah, everyone has exactly. that one aunt or uncle that does yes. that, or only out of a can. Yes, or the weird father-in-law that only drinks Natty Ice in bottles. Which is <laughs> weird because they don't even make it anymore. But yeah, I mean, we had some kickback, like I said, um, when we switched to cans. Uh, we lost some people that re- refused to eat, drink it in cans. They swear it was better in a bottle. Really? 
yeah, but, um, you know, it's too bad. I wish they would come back and keep trying it, you know, and try some of other stuff. But at the same time, you know, for the, the 10, you know, every one person I lost, we gained 30 in new customers that drink it out of cans, you know, and then move forward. So, cause, I mean, we went from doing about 700 cases of Blue Van a month when we did bottles. We went from that to about 2,500 cases a month as soon as we hit cans. Like, with inside of 30 days, 2,500 cases a month. So, wow. we, were, we were moving through beer fast. Yeah. That's like it was a good switch. It was a good business decision for okay. the brewery. Yeah. And then what do you do with that machine, that $50,000 machine that you used for bottling? <laughs> it's sitting in the back warehouse right now. Yeah, <laughs> We went through a phase. We tried to sell it. Um, but a 12-ounce Heritage bottle, since it is short, it's not, it's not a standard long neck 12-ounce like, bottle. Those like, like the Red Stripe bottles, right? Little no, tiny those ones. are a little bit sh- And those are actually only, I think, 8 ounces or 9 ounces. Oh, okay, okay. But those are a little bit shorter. But... These are, you know, a traditional long neck like a Corona bottle or a Budweiser bottle. They're, yep, they have yep. a traditional long. These are shorter necks, so they're shorter and a little bit fatter, okay. and they're just an odd bottle. You know, I think when when they started this place up and got started, you know, the salesman was in the right place at the right time, and he had the equipment and he had the the bottles, and he was like, "Hey, I'll make you a sweet deal on this machine and all these bottles." And they were like, "Well, that's cheap. Let's totally buy that one." And then realized that now we got into a machine that nobody's going to want when we're done with it, and that's pretty much what it is. It's sitting out in the back and. We can convert it to bottle like twenty two ounce bottles, um, but it'll cost us an extra twenty grand. And honestly, we do all our specialty beers now in sixteen ounce cans. So we do okay. sixteen ounce four packs of all our specialty beer now. And that was actually so. my next question. So mm-hmm. when what's the decision between making it a sixteen ounce can or a twelve ounce can? So anything that costs us a lot of money to make and it's more specialized or like barrel aged beers and things like that, we tend to put those in sixteen ounce cans because. I mean, if you really break down the cost for it, the customer gets more value for their buck because they're getting more beer in a four-pack, and they're paying a little bit extra for it, but you get more beer per, you know? Whereas you buy a 22-ounce bottle for eleven um, you can buy that same in a four-pack of 16-ounce cans for the same price. So that's what basically we charge for it. So we put, like our Brother Dewey's um, is an aged brown ale brewed with dates from Yuma and, and honey from Cottonwood. So we brew that, we age it for a year, and we put that in 16-ounce cans, and then we have the Devil's Barrel. It's a barrel-aged imperial stout. And we put that in strain of hands whiskey barrels for eight months. And it's got a super thick whiskey, but we can condition them. We just found that, like, you throw them in a can, no light, no air. It tastes the same when we canned it as it did before, you know. And any small flavor shift is a good aging quality. So, The beers you're talking about right now are, are all over the spectrum. So you yeah. guys are brewing, I'm guessing, every kind of beer right now. We try to do as much as humanly possible. I mean, the, the best way to keep it interesting is to constantly brew something new. you know. Um, on the production side, we struggle a little bit being able to, to constantly do creative new beers because you are a 30-barrel setup. Um, you have to brew 930 gallons of something. If it doesn't sell or it turns out bad, you've either wasted all that money or you take up a lot of storage space or you occupy a fermenter that could be making you beer that sells. You know, So it's kind of a balancing act. You know, we're not, it's not as much of a luxury when you get a lot of the smaller breweries. You go into the Phoenix area where they're running, you know, seven barrel to 15 barrel systems. They can experiment more and they make, you know, these guys have 20 different styles of beer on tap because you can make them on a smaller scale. You know, here we have about 16 at any given time that we keep up regularly. Okay. Um, That's we're still gonna, a lot. It is, yeah. We're going to shift up to like 20 or so because we've gotten really good at making a couple of different styles um, that translate into different beers pretty pretty well you know for instance like our sour our sour base kind of like uh, new belgian makes two different sour bases and they age them in various different ways to get their entire sour series yeah. we have a sour base here 
Um, and the way we put it, we kettle sour everything, and once we got that sour base, we make it into various different beers. So it's it's it spends most of its life as V Beauregard, the blueberry sour, and then once a year we kick it up a little bit. We make a, a little batch that's a slightly different, and then we add raspberries to it. It becomes our Razzing Arizona beer that we release in the springtime. So yeah. And do you find that you have a lot of freedom in making these recipes, or is it more of a structural thing? Because you guys are a pretty big operation. Is it yeah. um, just one day, you know, you're brewing beer, and you're like, you know what, let's toss this in, in this and see how it turns out, or is it more structured than that? We do. Um, it's more structured than that. If we want to do one, we kind of got to plan it out and then experiment. And it, and it will, once we get an idea of a base beer we're going to make, we'll come up with the random ideas to throw into it. Um, but, like, again, it is 30 barrels of it, so we tend to try to plan it out as best we can for success, you know, and do the best we can. But we like to do uh, we do like to do a lot of special beers. So we do a lot of special beers and a lot of special can releases that are just specific. So we just got done making a lager beer for Buses by the Bridge. We had a custom can designed for it, made a beer specifically. We only made 270 cases of it and sold out, you know, over the weekend to all the bus guys. So, you know, we like to do fun stuff like that on a smaller scale. Yeah. Out of curiosity, you said you you did have to throw you did have to throw out some batches of beer. Mm-hmm. What happened in those batches that you had to throw them out? Um, the luxury for us is the majority of the time when we had to toss them, we didn't make it all the way through to it being finished, so oh, okay. we never really got to find out if there was a specific um, fault in the recipe itself, as much as it was a fermentation problem. So, okay. you know, um, in order to keep the brewers and everybody excited for stuff, you know, you like to switch it up and brew something new. So when we brew something new. We make sure the new guys are there with us, kind of experimenting and playing around. And sometimes they're not quite ready or, you know, somebody will forget to oxygenate or the, the yeast isn't quite ready to pitch, so on and so forth. So we have a little bit of minor failures here and there, you know, or we get by bad diacetyl and something we didn't plan on getting it in, you know, which is a buttery popcorn-y flavor yep, yep. that you'll get in a lot of beers. We'll get that that lingers a little bit too long. So it kind of, you know, we get it, if you get a little too excited to experiment with a new hop, you know, sometimes you find out you know, 60% of the way through fermentation that that hop turned out to be way too bitter. And that's pretty much the only thing you can taste. So, Okay. You know. And the diac the diacetyl. Diacetyl, that right? yeah. So I've read about that in books. Yeah. And I've been, tr- what's the, how do you, so I heard it's like, like you said, a buttery flavor. Yeah, like buttered popcorn kind of. Is there a beer like that I could, like, how does someone try, how does someone like get that taste? Like, I, I just want to like taste it somehow just so I know when I, when I taste it, I'm like, oh yeah. So there's some beers where it's actually intentional. So oh. there's some thick stouts, some porters, stuff like that, where you get a butterscotchy flavor yep, behind. Yep. That's kind of a diacetyl that remains and stays behind. Oh. Um, a really, it becomes a really off flavor in something like an IPA where you just taste butter, straight butter by itself. That's a bad diacetyl. But in most cases, you, you know, it's not supposed to be there. In most styles, it's not supposed to be there. But in some, it stays behind. So you get a little darker beers with some butterscotch or browns. A lot of nut browns might have a little bit of diacetyl in it, okay, which is still acceptable. Yeah, but it's not something I, I can't go to like the uh, baking section of sh- of uh, the, the the supermarket and be like, oh, I'll take one can of diacetyl. I can't like go oh. out and like try it. No, but it's <laughs> it's like if you eat if you ever poured buttered popcorn on your on your popcorn at a movie theater, yeah, yeah. that's exactly what it's like. Okay, like, <laughs> it's exactly what it's like. Okay, I've been trying to get into that like tasting yeah. beer and be like, oh yes, it tastes like this. But I was like, I don't even know what half the things that I should be looking out for taste like. Well, you can if you want to do fun thing, you know, in your motorhome, you can get on the uh, Cicerone website, the beer Cicerone website, and yep, they yep. sell a tasting kit. And oh. what they'll do is you can take like any light beer, get yourself a pitcher of a light beer, and they'll sell you little vials of Spike. And it's basically you can just put that in it, and it'll tell you exactly what it tastes like. So oh. they do a whole off flavor thing that you can buy. 
That that might spike happen. Your, yeah, and it builds help build your palate, you know. Yeah. For the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's important. It's write off. It's business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. So we talked about everything. Oh, one thing I want to talk about was the uh, your guys like model on your website it says real beer, real food, real people, which mm-hmm. I think is so cool because me and my girlfriend always talk about we just want to talk to real people, people that are just straightforward like. There's no, like, you know, curtain behind what, who they really are. So how yeah. did that whole phrase kind of come to be for College Street Brewhouse? So um, initially it was a tagline that our initial uh, brewmaster set up. And he was one of those guys where anytime you went to a festival, um, you saw him. Like, you, you could meet the guy that brewed the beer every time you went somewhere because he liked being in festivals. He liked talking to people. So, and it's just been kind of a theme we've carried forward with everybody. So, I mean, every time we go to a festival, whether it's, you know, the Great American Beer Festival We'll have a booth out there in Colorado where you can meet the guy that brews the beer. You know, you're not you're not meeting just a salesman. You're not meeting an assistant or somebody who's just there for the marketing side. You're meeting the guys that brew it, and we do the same thing out out through Arizona. You know, like this bus. You know, as much as it is a marketing tool, I drive it to work every day. So we drive it. I drive it around town all the time. Really? Yeah, we drive it to Phoenix. We take it to every festival we go on. So I mean, we we everything's using is used and it's all functional. You know, because we're we're functional people. You know, there are times where everybody needs a little vacation and we'll swap out. And sometimes you'll get the marketing guy, but most of the time you get, you know, we're all the nuts and bolts that keep the whole place together. So we all tend to be included in everything. Yeah, It's not big business. It's uh, real it's people true. making real beer. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You guys tagline. Yep. <laughs> okay. So I got to ask my, uh, my favorite question of the podcast, which is your favorite or funniest beer story that you have. Yeah. Um, it's probably not the funniest, but um, my favorite one, I had just kind of started working here. I've been here about a year and a half, and we were at GABF. Oh, sorry, my telephone's ringing. <laughs> we were at uh, Great American Beer Festival, and we took a tour of New Belgium, and New Belgium was just hitting, starting to hit it hard with their sour setup. So we went and tasted one of their sours, and I tasted a dry hop sour that I fell in love with. Like, I'd never had a sour beer before, and i become obsessed with it. So I came back here. Kept trying to tell my boss, like, let me brew a sour, and he was not a sour guy. You know, it wasn't, he was a traditionalist to the Reinheitsgebot in the fullest. You know, it, it had to have the four basic ingredients, and that was the majority of all of it. Um, so it took a long time. I basically, what I ended up doing was uh, I took a small batch of our wheat, and I poured a bunch of lacto into it in a small glass carboy, and I shoved it underneath my desk. And I let it sit under the desk for a while. Um, trying to get the same kind of effect and souring it that way. So I did a long, long way sour. Um, and then without telling him when he was gone, I carved it up, got it ready to go, and I put it on tap out here. And I throw it on tap without telling him, without really telling anybody. I said, hey, it's new. there's sour beer on. And out here in Havasu, everybody looks, it's like, sour beer, is that intentional? Like, you probably shouldn't use that word to describe it, you know, and they were telling us. Shouldn't use that word to describe it. It sounds disgusting, and I just kind of... I gave away free samples of it in a four-ounce size, and people started drinking it and go, wow, that's that's way different. You know, A lot of people, granted, thought it was disgusting, but I ended up getting a lot of people to drink wine mainly that were really big on it. So they really dug the tannins, they really dug the tartness and the sourness, and that's kind of how the whole jump-off of the V. Beauregard started was in a small carboy underneath my desk oh, wow. Yeah, through the wintertime. So that's probably my, my favorite one. Holy Golden cow. Beer, yeah. It was just... Under your desk. Yeah. That's how it all started. I just, shoved, I just shoved it underneath there, and every time somebody came over and asked me what it was, I'd kind of cover it or put a box in front of it, like, don't pay any attention to it. Just ignore it. It's nothing, you know? Nothing. I have no yeah. idea what you're talking about. Exactly. A little experiment. <laughs> uh, and then the other question i got to ask is, 
uh, advice. So if someone wants to hop in the beer industry, who wants to, uh, you know, take that leap of faith, what advice do you have to someone who is either a home brewer who wants to work at a brewery or wants to open their own brewery? Yeah. Um, Homebrewers, you know, advice for homebrewers is easy. Like you're already, if you're doing it as a hobby, you already love it, right? You already know how to be clean and you already seemingly have the work ethic. But, you know, I'll tell you, once you get started doing it professionally, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. You can't turn it off. You know, you can't go home and think about other stuff. You know, it's 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 difficult balancing what you do for a living when you do this professionally with the rest of your life that's going on because because it is such a lifestyle, it tends to take over your lifestyle, you know. So it's really involved. Work ethic is super important, you know, and 90% of this job is janitorial, so you better like cleaning things <laughs> and sanitizing stuff and things like that, you know. So... When you started doing this professionally, did it, I guess you said you weren't really a homeowner, but professionally, did it kind of take away your love for beer to make you love it more? I know some people say, oh, if you love something as a hobby, keep it as a hobby, because if you yeah. do it for a job, it's going to be a job and not a hobby. Is it the same way with beer? Well, yeah, it can be. I mean, the like anything that you're doing, if you're not constantly challenged by it, it can start getting boring, and then you can start losing interest in it, you know? So, you know, I go through phases, like anybody else in life, a roller coaster up and down. Some weeks, I can't wait to get back to work. And then, like, other weeks when we're in a lull where there's no real growth or no super ex- nothing exciting going on, where we're just kind of producing and doing what we do, it gets boring and I run out of things to think about. So, I'll, you know, I get discouraged at that time. But for for most of the time, you know, it, it, it hasn't taken away my love for beer. But I'll tell you, I definitely drink a lot less now than I used to before doing it professionally. Oh, really? Yeah. So, now that I do it professionally, I mean, I sample regularly to make you know for doing quality control but you know maybe once a week i'll sit down at the bar and i'll drink a pint and talk to people it's really just you know i don't know you do it enough your regular life skips in i got two little kids you know they're all in baseball and mixed martial arts so it's like you know i come in here at seven o'clock in the morning and i gotta get out of here by five so i can get the kids and get everything running and, and you know between three and six is when everybody shows up at the bar and wants to hang out with the brewer and drink beer so it's kind of like every once in a while you can sit down and have a beer but you got to really kind of balance you know, doing that. Plus, when you run it and you're in charge, you know, my brewer drinks a lot more beer than I drink, you know, because he, he brews the beer and then his job's done for the day and he can hang out there and enjoy it. You know, he doesn't have to worry about the logistics and getting everything ordered and managing people. You know, once you start moving into that realm, there's a whole other level of headaches, I think, to go with it. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That was super important because I'm always wondering what, what what's that like, you know, yeah. if it is. And I don't keep a lot of beer at my house either. So because little kids and wife's a principal – um, we don't really, it, most people get tired and they want to sit down and have a beer. I, when I get tired, I'm, I'll fall asleep in five <laughs> seconds. So as soon as I sit down, it's like, I'm out and I'm sleeping, you know, <laughs> at best, I'm kind of a rum guy too. So I keep some rum in the house, you know, and I'll make a rum drink or something like that. But most of the time it's like sit, as soon as I get a chance to sit down, the kids are quiet. We're sleeping. So yeah. if anything, beer has just kind of changed. It hasn't, it's not, uh, gone away and it's just, you know, at, after a long day, you're not grabbing a beer. It's after exactly. a long day of beer. You're like, you know what? Exactly. Just sit here. <laughs> yeah, and you know, some people say you get a little bit more choosy on what you're going to drink and what you try. You know, you find a you find something a style you like, and you'll stick to that for a while. You know, and that's kind of the way my palate works. I go up and down with the seasons, what I feel like drinking, and if there's nothing on, I feel like drinking. I just don't have a beer. You know, so it's kind of that. You know, I don't know. It makes me bloat. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's definitely interesting. That's. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody drinking beer is like, oh, I'd love to just do this all day long. Yeah. But you know, someone who is doing it all day long every day. It's uh, important to hear that. Especially. Drinking it all day long is fun, <laughs> but somebody's got to, you know, somebody's got to make it. 
Yeah. You can't make it and drink it all day long at the same time. And order and manage people. He says exactly. do all the above yeah. stuff. And all the logistics <laughs> you, of a production brewery. Yeah. You can't do that if you're like 10 beers deep every day. That's true. Day. I mean, you you could, but you, you, could. Can't, you can't guarantee that it's going to be organized and make sense <laughs> when you're finished doing it. Yeah. Um, if someone wants to get in contact with you guys, have your guys' beer, um, anything like that, how can someone uh, reach out to you guys? So uh, best way is probably hit us up through the website. I mean, we're on Instagram, College Street Brew House. We're on Facebook. Um, our website, uh, College Street Brew House and Pub dot com, um, fully spelled out for anyone. It's a long website, but um, website's got a load of information. And then you know I can hook you up with a phone number. You can send us marketing emails. You can call the brewery directly and talk to one of our lovely hostess and ask them all kinds of questions. Sweet, and then grab a beer. Then grab them in Arizona. Then grab it in Nevada. Yep. So it's it's for sale retail in Nevada um, and throughout Arizona. Um, we can't ship beer direct to customer. Um, it's not legal for us currently, so if you <laughs> send me cool. an email and say, can you mail me a six-pack, I'm going to have to say no because <laughs> it's illegal for us to sell direct to customer. Now, on a different note, it's not technically – well, I guess it is to, it's, It is illegal to sell send alcohol through the mail, through the U.S. Postal System. Yep, yep. But there's nothing against the liquor law that says one friend can't send beer to another friend. So if you want to call and be friends, you know, <laughs> you can work something out. <laughs> Cool, and if anybody wants to get in contact with me or check out the podcast, just Google Brewery Talks Podcast or check us out at sciencesetuptraveling.com. Jason, thank you so much for hanging out today and giving us all the knowledge of everything. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for uh, hanging out in the porn van for 45 minutes. <laughs> hey, hour. this is a pretty cool van. Yeah. All right, everybody, cheers. Cheers. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode. I'm actually going to do a giveaway this week. If you listen to this episode, screenshot it, post it on your Instagram story, and tag Science It Up Traveling. And if you do that by February 4th, 2019, you will be entered to win some stickers. So uh, please do that. Cheers, guys.